Uh, well, we are, we are going to uh, continue. Actually, we're going to finish a series today. Before we get too deep into that, can you just, right where you're at, just pause for a second and take a good deep breath. Ah, doesn't that feel nice? Doesn't that feel good? We started this series a few weeks ago talking about how uh, we are living in a world that is out of breath. We are like people running around, panicking, gasping for air. And I said to you something about a month ago now, I said on the first Sunday of this series that this series is going to be as important to us, to our spiritual lives, as oxygen is to our physical lives. We've been talking about a, an ancient discipline called practicing the presence for about four weeks now, and today we're going to wrap up this series. But we have been studying what it looks like for us to practice God's presence, and we have found that practicing God's presence begins with having an awareness about God's presence in every moment. Practicing God's presence, uh, it, it produces the fruit of the Spirit in and through our lives. It requires that we slow down for uh, what we learned we call loving union with God. Being in the presence of God means that we have to slow down. And we also found last week that practicing God's presence very much is a gift of God's presence in the midst of our pain. And today we're going to finish this series by talking about a key element of this practice that I, I think if we left it out, we would not fully be practicing the presence of God. Because I would say this, practicing God's presence is just as active as it is passive or reflective. We practice the presence of God when we pause, when we recognize God is with us wherever we go, when we stop, when we slow down, and when we meet him in our pain. But we also practice the presence of God when we take godly action. Uh, in fact, Jesus actually baked this practice right into the Great Commission. Let me see if I can read it for you, see if you can spot it. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's interesting that that's the part of the verse that I usually would gloss over. I would spend a lot of time thinking about how God has told me to go. And what did he tell me to go and do? He told me to go and make disciples, tell people about the good news of Jesus, and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and make sure that I teach them all of the things that I've learned. That's a lot of activity. And yet Jesus bakes in the practice of his presence right into all of that activity by saying, when you do those things... I'm with you. Now the implication there is you might be able to say, if you don't do those things, you're missing my presence. So practicing the presence means that we have to be as active as we are reflective. Uh, practicing the presence requires a mindset that theological people might call the missional work of God. A missional mindset is the mindset that understands that God has a mission in the world. It's the Great Commission that we would make disciples, that everyone would know Jesus. That's the mission of God. That he actually has asked us to partner with the mission that God is always about or always on mission. 
He's never not actively on mission. And then we are to be on mission as well. So as much as we say, and we learned this in this series, that God is always present. We call that the theological term is he is omnipresent. There's never been a time or a place where he is not present. Not just there, but present and engaged. God is omnipresent. And as much as he is omnipresent, he is always on mission. Yes? Put another way, while God is always present wherever you are, he is always on the move, extending his love to all people. Pastor Rich Velotis, in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, puts it this way, there is never a moment where God is not moving toward the world in love. So practicing the presence of God requires that you follow God's presence out into the world to give away the love that you have received. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. It's one of the final things that he said before the resurrection, or the ascension rather. He says to his disciples, you have received my love, now go and freely give it. And he says some specific things. He says, pray for the sick. He tells them to raise the dead. Go preach the gospel, raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. You've received, now go and freely give. That's very active. So to to that end, to talk about wrapping up the practice of the presence in an active way today, I want to share with you four ways that we can follow the presence of God, or maybe said another way, four ways that we can follow the love of God and his presence out into the world. So we begin... At home, we begin practicing the active presence of God by loving the church. This is our first point for the day, is that we love the church the way God loves the church. Now, who's the church? The church is not just life church. The church is the body of all the believers around the world. Think about that for a second. Today is the day where most Christians gather to learn from the word, to study. To, to worship, to, to praise God together, to hear him speak and teach and encourage. And think about all of the millions and millions of people around the world who are, who are celebrating God together in unity today, all around the planet. That's pretty profound. That's the church. That's the, the body, or scripture calls, it the, calls us the bride of Christ. And God loves the church so much that when he says the bride of Christ, he's actually talking about us in the same way that he would talk about a married couple. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul gives advice to married people, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So to be a Christian is to live a life fully submitted to Christ as your head. Amen? But it's also to live fully committed to the church, the body or the bride of Christ. Now, the sad thing is that we live in a world where it has become popular, cool even. You're, you're, you're actually enlightened if you can deconstruct and, and, and become a person who then turns and mocks the church. You're especially enlightened if you leave the church altogether and then spend a lot of energy talking about how terrible the church is, right? People say a lot of things like, oh, I'm a religious person. I, I know God, but I don't want to have anything to do with God's people, which is an interesting thing because if one of God's people says he doesn't want to have anything to do with God's people, you're not one of God's people anymore. But that's probably a different sermon. We hear things like that, though. We hear things like, you know, I would go to church, but it's full of hypocrites. 
and the, the rough part about that is they're right. Like the, the church is full of hypocrites. Don't look around. Okay, but truth is, like, you're one of them, right? The church is full of sinners. Just like the gym is full of people that need to get into shape, the church is full of people who are not yet holy as he is holy. (laughs) We've got a lot of work to do, right? Now, the sad part is a lot of people will just write off the church until, until it can be perfect according to their standards. God says, I actually gave my life for a church that was imperfect according to my standards, and I still show up. Right? Well, think about it this way. The church is not a hospital, but if you were sick, you would go to a place where sick people are. If you needed a surgeon, you would go to the place where the surgeon works. And God is not limited to the location of the church, but he works in the church. Like it or not, God is actively engaged in the body of Christ. God is actively engaged in the church. Now, you have to be able to be wise and smart and, and, and mature enough to differentiate between the organizational uh, buildings and the, the structures and the organizations of man that, that, that we build as people who are a part of the church and to know what the church of God actually is. You have to know that God uses the organizations, but the church is the people. You're the church. We are the church. And God is actively engaged in us. And to be practicing the presence, to be a part of God's mission, is to love his church. So what does that look like? I'll quickly say three things that I think that that looks like. I think, number one, it looks like what you're doing right now. It looks like being with the church. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Or it says to stir up love and good works in another translation. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Simple reality, you can't show a person love if you're not connected to them. So in order to love the church the way Jesus does, you have to be with the church. Then secondly, to stir up love in the church. This is what Paul tells us, or whoever we think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but we won't get too far into that. But we're supposed to not just be with the church, but to stir love up in the church. If only thing you ever do is come to church to be loved, but never actually try to love anyone else, you're missing some of the point of why you came. So be with the church, gather Stir up love in the church. And then the third thing is that we would see that we are called to serve the church. Jesus actually taught this. He washed his disciples' feet. And in John chapter 13, he says, If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then Paul teaches in Galatians 6 to carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So love the church. If you want to practice the presence of then love the people he gave his presence to, the church. So if you were to put this into practical practice into your life, you'd start by asking yourself a few questions like, what would serving my local church look like? How can I stir up love and good works in my church? Certainly in your neighborhood, we'll talk about that. But in your church. What does it look like for you to serve and love here in your church, if this is your church? If you're just visiting, what does it look like for you to stir up love in your church? And then a third question might be, which members of my church can I bless or encourage this week? 
And if in your mind you just thought, I don't know anyone in my church, then this is the practice that you want to lean into. How do you love people you don't know? Pro tip, can I just get super duper practical for you? When we at the end of every service pray a blessing over you, and I like make it an awkward moment and just walk off the stage. The last couple of weeks I've been doing this intentionally just to see what would happen. And I just walk off this. You didn't know I was running an experiment on you for two Sundays in a row, did you? So I just will say, I'll just pray a blessing over you. And then I'll just, I'll just say amen and I'll just walk off the stage. That's your cue to practice the presence of God by loving each other. So if there's a person next to you, you don't know their name, before you move your butt today to get up and leave, I want you to go have the best lunch and leave a good tip and be a blessing wherever you go. But before you leave this place, love the church. And then do that every Sunday. And if you met one new person every single Sunday and then came back seven days later and remembered their name, or if they said, if they told you to pray something, you actually pray for them. By the way, all of this is leading to the point where, where uh, the church, loving the church, doesn't mean Tim preaches a good sermon. It means uh, Chris told us something about Jesus today. Like, did you hear him preaching to you today? Right? It's not just about me. It's about Chris. It's about all of us. It's about Elijah, right? It's about you, John. This is the church. Love each other. Love each other. Now, I can move on to the next point because you're already pretty good at loving each other, Life Church. Uh, but we have got to first love the church. We practice God's presence when we love and engage with his church. And then perhaps a little bit more challenging. Let's just go from something that's kind of easy to talk about to something really, really hard to talk about. We practice the presence of God actively when we love our enemies. This is a hard one, right? So, so during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. He, he talks about something that we might call enemy love. You all want to love your neighbor. Well, most of us want to love our neighbor. Uh, you, you want to love your spouse. You love your children, your parents, your family. But Jesus talks about enemy love. In fact, he talks about enemy love in a way that makes it sound like it's a part of the law of God. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What's the implication? If you're not willing to love your neighbors, don't tell people you're a child of God. Now think about that for a moment. Who's your enemy? If you, if, you, if you don't think of anybody, if you can't think of anyone, or maybe you just like, don't feel comfortable admitting to, in, in church, in the sanctuary, that you have enemies, I get it. I understand. But here are a few more questions that might help you clarify who's your enemy. Who would you not invite to eat in your home? For whom would you not pull over if you saw them on the side of the road? Who would you not speak lovingly about if they were brought up among your inner circle? Or who's made you feel unloved, unsafe, attacked, and then not apologized for it? Or, or not reconciled their relationship with you? Who are you waiting to make it right? That person is your enemy. Now, got 
real quiet in here. Remember this. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. We're very encouraged by that because it reminds us that wherever we are, God is with us. But we have to also reconcile that that means that with our enemies, God is there too. And the same love that he extended to you that got you into the kingdom, he loves them just as much. No more and no less. No more and no less than he loves you and also your favorite people on the planet. He loves our enemies. So we practice the presence of God when we love and pray for our enemies. I was just sitting with a group of people who had gone through a traumatic experience recently, and there was some anger and some hate because uh, there was a particular person who had come in, and uh, this was a group of people who had been witness to a shooting, and there was a person that this whole group of people knew very, very well, and they had lost their life. They were a victim of the shooting, and so there was, as you might understand, anger. There was, there was fear. There was, uh, there was unforgiveness in the room. And then we started talking about all the different ways that unforgiveness has taken root in these people who are ministers and they were just weary and there was a lot of struggle and, and hardness that they've been going through. And we started finding that there was there were a lot of other hurts and that this thing that happened was really just a trigger that, that made these people realize, man, I'm really tired and I don't know if I can keep doing this anymore. And as I was sitting with one of these people just in a moment of ministry just recently, I found myself asking this person, is there anybody else that you need to forgive? And they kind of named a person and, and said, but I don't know that I'm ready to forgive. How do I know that I'm ready to forgive? And so I told them a story about my own life and how I learned to forgive somebody that was very difficult for me to forgive. And that story goes like this. My dad left when I was eight. It was a very tumultuous relationship. And I really, for a long time, would have carried what you would call hatred in my heart towards my dad. And a mentor of mine came along and said, you need to forgive your dad. And I said, no, thank you very much. And then eventually my heart softened a little bit and I said, okay, I want to work towards that. What do I do? And he said to me, you need to pray blessings for your dad. I said, I don't know how to do that. I can pray blessings for people that I love. I can pray a blessing for my wife. How do I pray a blessing for my dad? And he said, just pray that God would bless him. Pray that God would heal his heart. Pray that he would encounter God, that, that actually that his business would be successful and that he would be able to see that God was the result or the source of the blessing, that, that God was trying to get his attention, that he loves him no matter what, that he would be blessed. And he said, do that every day until you mean it. And when you mean it, you'll know you've forgiven your father. So I shared this story with this young woman, and she just began to weep. And she said, I, I think I can probably try to do that. And she said, that's, that's good enough. I think we have to realize that loving our enemies is a journey more than it's just a flip, a, a switch that we flip. Loving our enemies is a, is a lifestyle. Loving our enemies is a culture we choose to live in. It's a practice we, we, uh, we doggedly go after. On the days that we don't want to, that we treat loving our enemies as important to us as worshiping God. Because doesn't Jesus say, if you don't love your enemies, don't go around telling people you're one of my kids. Because my kids love everybody. It's probably a timely sermon as we're coming up on another election season. So who's your enemy? 
those people, the people who voted differently than you or who are going to vote differently than you, the people who hold the picket sign or the people who throw rocks at the people who hold the picket signs that you agree with, who's your enemy? And what are you going to do about it? If you practice the presence of God, we love our enemies. So if we were to put this into practical practice, we would ask ourselves questions like, how can I resist the urge to make enemies out of people who are different than me? And how can I go beyond just holding back hate to actively showing them love? How can I pray blessings and then how can I even be a blessing for them? So we would spend time in prayer forgiving and blessing these people and if possible saying it to their face. Side note, forgiving a person who has done you actual harm does not mean you go back into the same relationship and put yourself in harm's way again. You don't have to be unsafe to be like Jesus. But you do have to forgive. Okay. So we ask God to heal these people emotionally and spiritually. We ask God to bless them. We practice the presence of God when we love his church and when we love our enemies. And thirdly, we practice the presence of God actively when we love the hurting in the world the way that God does. Jesus made it very clear that a huge part of his mission was to love hurting people. He once declared, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim to the captives, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus' ministry focus was and still is on the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. According to a 2019 census in the Antelope Valley, which is an area of give or take 500 to 600,000 people in the greater Antelope Valley, it's 2,200 square miles, which makes it 50% of the land space of all of LA County. And according to a 2019 census in the Antelope Valley, there were 3,298 people experiencing homelessness on any given day. And as of September of this year, that number has increased to 4,598 people experiencing homelessness. Other reports show that anxiety and depression rates have increased in America. In 2019, the average rate was 11% of people experiencing anxiety and depression in the United States. And between 2019 to this year, that rate has jumped from 11% to 40% of people. You can just think back and imagine why. In 2018, the Global Slavery Index estimated that on any given day, there were 403,000 people living in conditions of modern slavery in the United States. If God is ever present, then he must be present with those people as well. The question is, are we? Is the church? In what ways are we extending the love of God to hurting, marginalized, otherized people? We extend love by serving the poor, by sitting with a friend who's facing an emotional struggle, 
by sharing the love of Jesus, the good news, the gospel. As the old saying goes, preach the gospel at all times and when absolutely necessary, use your words. Do we do it by action, right? We practice God's presence when we go with him to love others that others might not otherwise love. So the question for us is how am I showing love to people that society would forget or call unlovable? The difficult nuance of this moment is that the presence and the love of God requires that we love the oppressed as much as we love the oppressor. How are we working to show love to both of those groups of people? How, how can I use what I have to bless someone who is going without? What would your answer to that question look like this week? How can I use my presence to bring peace to a person in pain? I remember when I was going through that, uh, d- the divorce of my parents when I was a kid, and it really affected me for a number of years. And I remember Danny, who's up here, who was up here leading worship. He's our worship and youth pastor. And many of you know him, and you know what a big heart he has for people. And I remember him in our, in our younger years when we were growing up in this youth group here at this church, and he knew I was just in pain. And, and that pain manifested itself in a lot of anger. And I'm a verbal processor, so I would a lot. It was, it was a lot. And Danny would just sit with me. Danny's gift of presence was the presence of God with me. He practiced the presence by just sitting with me when I was in pain. He never had an answer. I don't remember a single piece of advice Danny ever gave me during that season, but he changed my life because he sat with me. Now, just on a practical note, <laughs> On Friday of this week, we are serving a meal at Grace Resource Center. And if you'd like to sign up to serve, we would love for you to join us on that team. And, and, if, and if you don't make it on Friday, let us know. Hey, let me know when the next one is because we actually serve over there at least once a month. We're serving a hot meal over there. And if you want to come up with other ways that we can serve, uh, let us know. Any practical way that you can, uh, can partner with us, let's do it. Let's do it together. Amen? You don't have to do that alone. Let's do it together. And then on another practical note, on October 30th, uh, we're not actually holding a massive harvest festival on Halloween this year because that falls on a Monday. So on Sunday, October 30th, we're going to have a regular church service. Then we're going to have a big old party out in the parking lot. We're going to invite our neighborhood out to to just witness the love of Jesus, just to to be loved on and celebrate and have some fun. We're going to cook some good food that day. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to need you to make that event awesome. So sign up to serve at that event. And there's just two, just two simple ways. We've already done like 50% of the work so just to plan an event so that you can show up and just be you who is a loving person. And then just do that every day that you can for the rest of your life. Does that sound good? Super easy, right? <laughs> so we practice God's presence when we love his church when we love our enemies, when we love the hurting, and finally we practice the presence of God when we love the world the way God loves the world. Now, when we say that God loves the world, what we actually mean is that he loves the planet and all of the people on it. We have to embrace a holistic understanding of what we mean when we say, or what God means when he says he loves the world. So to that end, love for the world takes on both justice and environmental care. 
And now I understand that I'm about to say something when I, when I say Christians should care for the environment. I understand that I'm about to say something that you didn't expect to hear a pastor say on a Sunday morning. And I'm not just talking about you should recycle. Okay, it's deeper than that. Recycle. Yeah, do that. Absolutely, that's part of it. Justice and environmental care blend together for an active love of the world. When God created the world, what did he say about it? It was good. It was good, which means nothing was harming God's creation. It was good. But then this event happened. We call it the fall of man. Sin entered into the world, and it resulted in at least two things. I mean, there was a lot, but for the sake of this conversation about loving the world, it resulted in the rise of injustice, for example, when Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then it also resulted in the gradual destruction of God's good planet. Well, think about that. If you created something good, and then your kid came along and just smacked it and destroyed it, how would you feel about that? When God created the planet, he said it was. And how is it now? And why is that not an expression of our love for God? We have to be talking about this, right? Adam and Eve were told to care for, to steward the planet. You know the, the moment that our, the way that we changed the way we treated the world when it happened? was when Adam and Eve realized that they were not wearing any clothes. You realize that they had not been wearing any clothes the entire time. It never dawned on them that that was a problem because it wasn't. They were just perfectly sin-free in the garden, walking in the presence of God. God would come, as was his practice, to walk in the cool of the day in the garden and then all of a sudden one day God shows up in the garden walking in the cool of the garden and he goes, hey, Adam, where are you at? And Adam goes, <gasps> and what does he do? He, he does something very specific. He takes leaves and makes himself clothing. Now, to us, that just feels like a historical event that bears not much significance, and it's why we all have our duds on today. But think about what happened to God's creation in that moment. The planet suddenly shifted from being a gift that was good, that, was, that Adam and Eve were told to care for and steward, to being something entirely different. It's, it suddenly was a commodity, a resource, design, or existing only to be consumed for the comfort of man. And look at the results. We are destroying the gift of God, and this should matter. If you want to practice the presence of God, you are going to have to care for the things he created, and that actually does include the planet. So practically speaking, we practice the presence of God when we bless the planet as much as we bless our neighbor. But also in our fallen world, people have become a commodity just as much as the planet. God has called us to a different kind of living. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He has told you, mankind, what is good. What does the Lord require from you except to carry out justice 
and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So we practice the presence of God when we behave to the world and the people in it the way God does, by carrying out justice, by loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Now notice that our relationship to mercy is to love it, but our relationship to justice is to do it. I love mercy. I'm supposed to do justice. You can't do justice by saying, I like justice. Stand over here for a second. Pulpit, personal opinion. Just for, just for, indulge me for a moment. Okay, your social media feed is not a justice platform. That's not where justice happens. Justice happens where broken people are and you go to speak for them. Now, if your social media platform supports the work you are doing, yay, good, awesome, well done. Those two things should be congruent. The things you post online should also be a reflection of the life you're actually living. But if you're actually using the platforms and the things that you say in public to make it look like you care about things that your actions don't actually show that you care about, you're not doing justice, you're just talking about it. Jesus says, do justice. Do it. That has to look like something. Now, let's make, uh, let's make this really, really clear. Justice is active, but doing kingdom justice is not what the world calls justice. The world defines justice uh, with picket signs, character assassination, cancellation, and threats of violence or actual violence. Worldly justice takes up offense, picks up weapons, and tears down enemies, but kingdom justice forgives, lays down weapons, and builds people up. Paul made this clear for us in Romans chapter 12. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. I've been deeply moved recently to consider what it would look like to commit to complete pacifism. Just for the record, when I said that to my wife recently, she thought I said pessimism because I, I was mumbling. Um, and, and so just to clarify, pessimism is when you have a negative outlook on the world. Pacifism is when you do this. You don't seek to avenge yourself. What would it look like in America for us to become pacifists the way Jesus was? Now, Jesus flipped a table when it was needed, but he never fought a person. Jesus made a whip to, to drive out some people making his church, the temple, the house of God, making it into a marketplace to turn people and things into a commodity. He saw injustice, so he made a whip and he flipped a table and he drove out the sellers and he said, you've made my house into a den of thieves. And we're, maybe I need to step away for a second. We get so invested. Now, if you're, I might really be stepping on a toe for a second. You can buy me lunch sometime and we can talk about this. We get so invested into our right to defend ourselves that we will buy weapons of warfare just to prove that we can 
and call that God's will. And there's a moment in the garden before Jesus went to the cross when Peter literally tried to kill a person who he thought was going to kill Jesus. You see what happens in this moment? Peter grabs a sword and he tries to kill a man. Now, thankfully, Peter had bad aim and he only sliced off a guy's ear. And Jesus doesn't even leave the, the harm the way it was. Like, this is a gross moment. He picks up the guy's severed ear, puts it back on the side of his head, heals the ear, restores the enemy to good health because someone representing Jesus had wounded the enemy of God. And he says, I am so committed to perfect health of even my enemies that I will heal the ear of the enemy. And then he turned to Peter and said, no more of this. Now, I don't, I don't know what that means. I genuinely do not know, and I'm not telling you what you should do with your gun ownership. I, I'm not telling you what you should do about that. Just like I would never tell you who to vote for, I will never tell you whether or not you should own a gun. It's probably none of my business. Might be God's, though. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Jesus, God, the one who healed his enemy's ear, says, I still have wrath, but that's my business. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay it. I will repay it, says the Lord. Not you, not your armies, not your militias, not your freedom. I will repay it, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Imagine what the Roman soldier was thinking as Jesus hung on the cross. That man healed my ear when I came to arrest him. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Do you notice how kingdom justice looks like caring for the oppressed and also caring for your enemies? Kingdom justice absolutely also looks like the wisdom of Proverbs 31.9 when it says, open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You can't do that in silence. Justice speaks up for and defends those who cannot defend themselves. Kingdom justice works to see all people live and thrive, including the refugee and the unborn and your enemy. And justice work is not an option. In Matthew 23, verse 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. If we were to update that into 2022 terms, he would say, Woe to you, church attenders, because you go on Sunday and you give 10% of your money, but you don't love the poor. You don't do justice. You don't heal your enemy. That hurts. 
I mean, honestly, like if that doesn't hurt you a little bit, if Jesus didn't just wound you a little bit out of his love for you, your heart is not fully engaged. This is meant to hurt a little bit. James helps us to put some flesh onto what justice work should look like for Christians. We go, what do we do? And James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if you were to put this into practice this week, you would ask yourself, how can I steward the resources of this planet in ways that honor God's creation? And what injustice do I see around me? And what can I do to speak up? Go further and then say, and what will I do about it? So we practice the presence of God by practicing what Jesus would do if he were us. If, if he were living in your shoes, do the things he would do. For as cheesy as those bracelets are that we used to get when we were in youth group, what would Jesus do? You practice the presence when you do that thing. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love. That love, he actually said, by the way you love each other. And then it follows by the way you love the world. Our love begins with loving one another. It becomes radical as we extend it to our enemies. It changes lives as we love the hurting and the oppressed. And it demonstrates God's power as we work to do justice for and in the world. This is the practice that seeks to follow God's presence into the world and to produce the fruit of the Spirit in others. And we do that by love. So today we ask, have to ask ourselves this question. Does my practice lead me to share God's presence? Or am I only looking to consume God for personal gain and comfort? During this series, we have shared a simple prayer. It's three lines. God, I know you are with me. I root myself in you now. Grow your fruit out of my life. Today our focus has really been on the fruit that grows that blesses other people. So can you think for a moment before we wrap up this service and I awkwardly walk off the stage to let you go and love one another. Can you take a moment and maybe you need to close your eyes and think through it for a moment. Think about your own life. Think about the others in your life. Who is God sending you to with his presence? It begins in this room, expands out to the places where you live and work and do life. Who is God sending you to? The places where he isn't sending me or the person sitting next to you. Who is he sending you? What steps can you take this week to practice God's presence as a blessing to those people? Ask God right now where you're sitting, God, what can I tangibly do this week to practice your presence by blessing those people I just thought of? In the places, God, where that is a really hard request, 
Would you bless us with peace that passes understanding? As your word tells us in Philippians chapter 4, that if we would think on righteousness, things of your kingdom, what is good and noble and pure and holy and true, if we would think on these things and do them, then we will have the peace of God. So God, would you stir us up to go and do that hard thing if it is hard for us? If it feels so easy to us, God, would you help us not to flippantly practice your presence, but to make our love for others intentional, noticeable, meaningful this week? Not to just use empty words, but to really love people. Will you, before we do anything else, pray for those people in the name of Jesus? If they need to know him, pray that they would. If they need to be reminded that they are loved, pray that you would be able to remind them of that exact thing. If they need a miracle, a touch of God's presence in their life, pray a blessing. God, we pray. God, I am so very aware that this is a difficult, weighty sermon to hear. We have touched on things today that have been hard to listen to, hard to receive. But I'm reminded that you have said so often that we're blessed if we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Help us to be teachable today. Help us to hear what you would say to your church in the places where we need to repent. I come before you with my heart in repentance. In the places where we need to take action, stir us up, God, stir me up. God, you are good. I'd like to pray a blessing over you as we wrap up our time, but first, can we pray together the prayer that has been our practice for this series? It's just those three simple lines that should be on the screen. Will you pray with me? In fact, let's stand to our feet, and then we'll pray this prayer together. I'd like to pray a blessing over you, and then I'm just going to walk off the stage like I have been doing. So uh, you're going to be blessed at that point to go in the presence of the Lord and be a blessing with each other, but to turn and love the church begin the practice of the presence today. Let's pray this simple prayer together as we close this series. We say this, God, I know you are with me. I root myself in you now. Grow your fruit out of my life. And I pray this blessing over you, friends. May you be fully satisfied by the presence of God. And may you be moved with compassion to those who are not. May you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. May your soul never be unaware of God's loving presence in every moment. And may your life reflect the beauty, power, and love of God's presence everywhere that you go. In the name of of the ever-present Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now go in the presence of the Lord. Be a blessing.